Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Alright, a couple weeks ago I uh, let everybody know that there was a possibility of me uh, and Melissa being able to move into a different uh, place where I would have a studio space that would just be dedicated for this activity so that I could improve the quality of my YouTube content. That is now happening. This weekend I am going to be doing that move. We did not get to the target that I actually had set on Patreon and I want to keep going on that because I actually need the support and help to make this actually totally happen. But I wanted to give a huge shout out to everybody who has responded amazingly uh, over this month. This has been an, an amazing month uh, of support from you guys. and. It is, I can't even begin to thank you enough. So let me give a little shout out here to everybody who has uh, come on board. And it's, it's a few people. We got uh, Sean McMullen, uh, T. LaCour bumped up uh, their pledge. Uh, Jenny Rose White bumped up theirs. Mike Blau bumped up his. Shelly Biba uh, came on board. Cynthia Pinsalt, uh, I got up, I'm Pinsalt. I'm really sorry about the names. I'm, I do butcher them. But anyway, Cynthia, thank you very much for bumping up your monthly amount. Same with Andrea Strubel. Sean Sendelback signed up. Eric Herner bumped his up. Robert Black also. Julie uh, Diliberti signed up. Julie Knight bumped up her amount. Uh, Callie Corbis came on board. Holly Edmiston and Sandy Del Rey bumped up theirs. Julie Patterson signed on. Carolyn Stacy bumped up hers. Thank you very much. Seth Sheedy's, uh, somebody who's uh, calling themselves Y'all Ain't Right, <laughs> has pledged on board. Renee, er uh, no, uh, Lemmy Adams bumped up theirs. Jeremy White, Wilson Dobbs, George Ann Roy, uh, The Crackpot, Peter Hall bumped up theirs. Fran Bridge, thank you very much for bumping up yours. Buffy, uh, Linda Norvich, and Karen Della Carriere. All right, guys, so thank you very much. A big shout out to all of you guys for coming on board or uh, throwing me some more support on a monthly basis. And, um, and we still got, you know, a long ways to go. But I wanted to let everybody know that I do have some, some things coming that will... Uh, that I put on my Patreon page. I tried to sort of upgrade it a little bit and put some uh, statuses on there and stuff. Uh, totally ripped off the uh, IAS status titles. Uh, you can check out my Patreon page. It is linked, I believe, the, the uh, little I in a, a circle. You can click on that. That'll give you a, a, what's called a card and uh, here on YouTube when you're watching. And that card, if you click on it, will take you to my Patreon page. There is also a link to my Patreon page in the description of every single video I post. Anyway, wanted to, um, you know, please encourage anybody to, uh, to support this channel if you enjoy what I'm doing, find it entertaining, informative, educational. So let's go ahead and get on with the content now and get to that information and education and entertainment uh, with your questions. Sherry Sporn. I was reading Mike Rinder's blog this morning, and at the end of it he asks, Don't these people ever get sick of the demands for money? Don't these people ever wonder what happens to all the money they do give? That is my question. 
From what I've seen online, it seems like many of the public do get sick of it and try to fly under the radar by not attending events, giving as little as possible, etc. They either still believe in the tech or are trying not to be disconnected. But are there really people who do not know something is wrong based on the excessive regging? Or are only mildly annoyed but think it's okay and are still happy to pay for eternity? Well, I imagine within the world of Scientology, you're going to find a full spectrum of that from, you know, slavish, uh, dedicated, fervent supporter that, you know, believes that the church can do no wrong over to people who are on the fence under what we call under the radar, where they're not even really going into the church anymore. They're not, you know, calling the church back when the church calls them. They don't go to events. They don't do services, but they still call themselves a Scientologist if, if fellow Scientologists ask them about it because they don't want to get disconnected or they still think that there's something valid to Scientology or to Hubbard and his tech, as they call it, um, but they don't really like what's going on with the church so much anymore. And you have a, you know, you have a full spectrum there. And then, of course, if they go even further off the radar, under the radar, then they end up leaving the church altogether. Um, and this just comes down to individual experience and, um, and education in Scientology and a person's, you know, people have different proclivities towards um, belief and toward fervor, uh, for, you know, fervent belief in something, um, religious or, or not. And, um, and Scientologists are not really any different. So I, you know, so I couldn't really sit here and say, oh, no, there's no, you know, everybody in Scientology knows there's something wrong because I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, you know, and this might be along the same lines as, um, you know, it's just, it's an easy example to use, so I'll use it. I don't mean to, to you know, I talk about Catholics uh, and you know, I'm pretty sure that a lot of Catholics are probably, um, you know, with with the uh, constant news about, you know, pedophiles in the church and uh, amongst the, the priesthood and how, you know, exasperating and, and difficult and, and frustrating that can be to be a Catholic and be associated with a group like that. But I'm pretty sure amongst all those folks, you're going to find a, a, a similar range, a similar spectrum of people who, you know, some of them are going to look at that and they're going to think that that those practices, that the that the the criminality and the the really disgusting pedophilia that exists within the the Catholic priesthood um, is a is a reflection on Catholicism itself, and that it. Um, it, it shows that it's not a faith of, of honesty and compassion and care, uh, because how could you have its most dedicated members, the, the priesthood, you know, doing this to uh, sexually assaulting children? I mean, that's, that's just crazy. So I'm sure there's some people who look at that and go, oh my God, and, and really end up in a crisis of faith. I'm sure there's other people who are Catholics who, can, who look at that but separate that bad behavior out from the church itself. And they go, well, there are, there are these, these criminals who became priests, um, or they were priests and then they be, you know, gave in to their darker, baser selves and went off the rails and committed these sins and, and they were you know, not, you know, you could have all kinds of opinions about these guys from the, from the idea that they were never really priests to begin with to uh, they, you know, lost their way and, and gave in, you know, to sin uh, or whatever 
you know, uh, whatever else anybody might say about it. There, you know, I'm sure there's lots and lots of ideas being expressed out there. Um, I think you find the same thing in Scientology. I think you would find Scientologists who would look at the excessive uh, salesmanship, the, what we call the regging, right? They're trying to register them for services. Um, and they look at the, the, the high-pressure sales tactics, and they look at the, the, um, the, the disconnection and the shunning and the, and the ethics actions that go on, and they go, well, that really sucks. I really hate all of that. Uh, it's because nobody enjoys it. I mean, I can definitely say that with some degree of certainty. Uh, I, I never met any Scientologist who enjoyed being sold Scientology, right? Everybody complains about it. But they look at that as a necessary evil. They look at it as something that's not the tech, the, the, the methods and the, and the actual uh, dogma of Scientology. So they separate those things out. And that's, you know, I think that's kind of how they rationalize it or justify it because Let's face it, you know, as human beings, we can rationalize pretty much anything. Uh, we're very good at it. And there's lots of mechanisms going on up here to, um, to make, you know, that rationalization happen. When we believe in something, we can, we can make anything make sense uh, to, to hold on to or maintain those beliefs. So that's kind of what I think is going on there. And I think that, um, you know, when they, it's only when the church turns on them personally or they're somehow let down by the tech or by the church itself, not the, the abusive you know, kind of regging or, uh, or even ethics that goes on, but um, you know, that's, that's not enough to turn them off. But if things get you know, directed at them personally or they have some big upset with it and then they can start finding, then, then they allow themselves to be critical of, of the group and, and of the of the dogma itself, and they uh, then they can start stepping away for real and get all the way out. So I think that's I think that's kind of how that works. Jason Smith, how do you start to introduce critical thinking and the dangers of destructive cults, not just Scientology, to kids without scaring or boring them? And how do you make it seem interesting or attractive? My daughters are eight and nine, so hopefully I have a while before needing to worry about a cult sucking them in. I want to make them aware and begin to introduce the concepts of charlatans and con artists. As you point out, this exists in much more than religion. Politics, movies, TV, internet, commercials, etc. Yeah, teaching critical thinking. I wish I had this totally nailed myself, but here are some ideas I can throw at you on this. Um, I believe that learning is best when it is something that is personal to, to an individual, that, you know, if they can find examples or relate the material to themselves directly. I think that that has a lot to do with um, uh, being able to assimilate the information quickly. So maybe finding, um, you know, first off, you have to get across the, you know, you, a, a gradient scale, a, a ladder, a, a, you know, a step-by-step -step approach to it. You start with the most simple concept possible, you know, and dishonesty or um, the, you know, the fact that somebody might say something but actually mean something else, or they might say one thing but actually the truth is different, right? First you get that concept across, and that's not hard to get across. Kids, I'm sure, you know, your eight or nine-year-old are well aware of dishonesty and how that works because I think kids pick up on that right away once they start getting socialized uh, in kindergarten. I mean, I remember when I was in school and and, uh, you know, you get a social pecking order right away, you get hierarchical thinking, you get 
bullies, you get, you know, friends, you get all kind, you know, everything that you're going to encounter in life. You almost, almost everything that happens there happens in kindergarten, you know, or in, in first grade. So, so kids get, get a pretty quick education in, um, in dishonesty and conning, people conning them or uh, approaching them and saying one thing but meaning something else. So perhaps the best way of approaching this with children is to get them to tell you about those kind of experiences that they've had and what lessons they have learned from that. Have them tell you and find out where, where they're at on it. What do they think? You know, it's, it's kind of amazing what kids will say or what they're, you know, how complex their, their, their thought processes can get by the time they're eight or nine, actually. Um, and, uh, and, and that's more of a maybe a Socratic kind of method, like you're getting them to tell you, you get, you know, you kind of lead them along uh, with questioning. Right, so everything that you're asking them directly relates to them and their own experiences, and um, and therefore will be something that they can get, you know, really hold on to and and uh, learn from. And it's not just you dictating things to them, uh, you know, because it, kids, you know, kind of yeah, okay, it's the you know, it's the parents telling me this, and and uh, and so so anyway, I think that business of relating things back to real life and to their own experiences is uh, is pretty crucial. Uh, and then, like I said, a step-by-step -step approach. You know, you're not going to start talking destructive cults and us versus them thinking and, and fervor and, you know, this kind of stuff. You're not going to be introducing that, those concepts at, at, at that young of an age. But you can certainly get the warning signs of, um, of narcissistic behavior, of, uh, of selfish behavior, of ego-driven behavior. You can get those kind of things across to kids. And, I, and again, I'm, I'd be surprised if by that time... If they're even halfway aware of their environment, what's going on, they've probably picked up on a lot of this stuff. So by talking about it, you can stress importances about lessons that they might have learned, or maybe they've learned some wrong lessons along the way, and you need to get them to tell you about it so you can kind of, you know, push their thinking in certain directions, right? And again, I think through questions is the best way to do this, but... Um, but you can, you know, obviously you can relate your own experiences to them or uh, similar experiences that they'll be able to understand and get it across that way. And that's, that's how I would approach teaching children about uh, critical thinking and, um, uh, and who, who to watch out for, how to watch out for them, what kind of things to watch out for. You know, uh, for example, okay, um, you know, the word narcissist, it's a big word. I don't know if you want to give that to a nine-year-old, but getting across the idea of somebody who is too much focused on their own interests to the exclusion of everybody else, right? All they care about is themselves. They don't care about anybody else. Have you ever seen anybody like that? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, oh, yeah, well, tell me about that. Oh, well, you know, Sally Sue and blah, 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 blah. You know, and you go, okay, good, well, maybe... You know, in life, you know, when you're, when you're going to meet a lot of people, you're going to run into a lot of folks, you know. So uh, how do you know? What kind of signs have you picked up that tell you that somebody is like that? You know, that maybe, maybe when they're so full of themselves like that, they can't really um, be trusted to care about what you want or what you need. You know, they're only going to care about their needs. You know, that kind of thing. Maybe that might help. So, I don't know. I, you know, it's the kind of the, the off the top of my head answer there, but I thought that kind of thing might, might be best. 
Um, and anybody out there, by the way, on this particular question, I actually would be very interested in anybody's feedback on what they've done with their kids that has helped with this. Because I think any advice in this uh, would be very, very helpful because kids are so different and there's probably a hundred scenarios I'm not thinking about right now that would be useful to teaching children about this subject. So leave them in the comments if you've run across, if you've had good experiences or bad experiences doing this with, you, with, uh, with your kids or other people's kids. Matt, what's the story behind the official L. Ron Hubbard biographer? As a kid, I was told he was not a Scientologist, as if to say he's impartial and had no reason to say anything untrue. Who is he if not a Scientologist, or was I misinformed? Is he just not in the Sea Org? All right, here's what I can tell you. The guy's name is Dan Sherman. He was hired in the 1990s by the Church of Scientology. He was already an OT Scientologist. He'd been around in Scientology for many years. In fact, I believe, if, I re if I'm recalling correctly, that he was involved with OSA work against Jerry Armstrong back in the 80s, working with Mike Rinder. Um, I seem to recall his name coming up somehow in connection with uh, Jerry Armstrong's case. So he's been around for a while. He's been on the inside of the church for a long time. But no, he's not a Sea Org member, and I, I don't think he ever was. I don't know a lot about his background in Scientology other than that. I remember very clearly the event where he was announced as the L. Ron Hubbard biographer. It was a great big deal. Um, again, I think it was early 90s that this happened. Um, he was presented as somebody who, you know, they had a they'd, they'd gotten it down to a short list and they'd worked these guys over and, and done various, obviously they did a lot of sec checking on them. As Scientologists, there's no way they were ever going to give that job to somebody who was not a Scientologist because David Miscavige absolutely holds exclusive control over anything going out of the church, and that includes L. Ron Hubbard's eventual biography. So, um, so he wasn't going to have an author that was going to buck him or buck the system or in any way go outside the church in order to get their work publicized or spill the secrets or something. I mean, this was, this was going to be somebody who was going to be granted access to L. Ron Hubbard's diaries and personal notes, I mean, everything. So, you know, what kind of private conversations Dan Sherman might have had with David Miscavige about how to deal with some of the more troubling areas of Hubbard's life, such as the fact that he flunked out of college, never saw a day of combat, didn't have any war wounds. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know how they thought they were going to spin that, uh, because that's the facts. I mean, we've got it all documented. But, you know, the, the truth and, and the Church of Scientology are not close friends. So I imagine that whoever they, you know, when they got Danny Sherman to do this job, they must have made it clear that, you know, he was going to be going with the church line and not with reality or truth. I mean, I, there's no way you could hire somebody for that job who was not compromised. So, um, so that's, you know, that's what I know about the guy himself. He is, um, he's a pretty literate guy, tends to speak and run on sentences. Uh, he was already a writer, a professional writer. I, I didn't look up before I answered this question here what it was that he had written before he got hired by Scientology, but he, but he was a professional writer. And, um... He pretty much, his job at first was, I'm sure, compiling this biography and something got put together because I remember 
some former members talking about seeing a manuscript, but um, clearly that manuscript is not anywhere close to being released to the public because we already know that anything the church says as far as the church's lies about Hubbard's life, that's all been so thoroughly debunked that you know his biography would just be met with ridicule if it was published now. Um, so Sherman ended up becoming a bit of a, you know, basically a speechwriter. And he also became the author of a series of magazines that were published by the church about Ron's life, where they broke down Ron's professional life into different categories, uh, like master mariner, photographer, artist, writer, you know, all the various things that Hubbard claimed to be a professional in. They have a magazine dedicated to just that subject and sort of showing um, photos of Hubbard doing that profession or that activity, writings that Hubbard wrote about that profession or activity, things he did, stories that people have about him as a sailor, for example. Uh, those were all compiled and put together, and that's pretty much the only real biographical publications that Sherman's put out. And uh, otherwise, he's done briefings every year at the um, L. Ron Hubbard birthday event on March 13th. He tends to come out and tell some, you know, grand story about Hubbard and, and his life and paint him out to be the, you know, the, the, the past master of anything and everything. So that's kind of been his role. And I don't know that he's done any other work. I'm sure that the, the, the church has paid him quite handsomely for the work that he has done over these last what, 20, 25 years or something now? Uh, I mean, it's kind of, you know, kind of silly. He's clearly known as the RH biographer, but there's, there's no biography after decades. So, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't even know if they call him the biographer anymore. But that's, uh, that's pretty much everything I know about that guy. Emily MK97. Do you find yourself hypersensitive to environments, words spoken, etc., that remind you of moments of susceptibility? I ask from selfishness. I am and hope I am not alone in looking for an exit when I perceive an environment being manipulated. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say unequivocally, yes, I am hypersensitive to um, speech, writing, uh, any situation I find myself in where someone is being manipulative uh, or using the tools of manipulation in some fashion. Uh, I've been talking about these tools for years, so, you know, so I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about here. Um, I, I am ultra-sensitive to it, and in fact, that's the thing that's gotten me uh, talking about anything other than Scientology, is when I learn about these things, and then I started seeing indications of them everywhere. I mean, there's, there's people trying to con people about everything and anything all day long. Uh, it, which is not to say that, you know, everybody's evil and must be destroyed. I'm just saying that there are... Uh, you know, the, the tools of salesmanship are so closely related to the tools of cult recruitment. And uh, those though all those mechanisms or tools are also closely aligned with propaganda techniques. Uh, so this leads right back to, you know, Goebbels and Hitler and, and World War II stuff. Um, and I've made it, you know, a, a study of mine to look into all this stuff, to, to learn about this, because I want to know, uh, you know, how to educate, you know, my, myself and, and my friends and family and then, you know, you guys about how to avoid this kind of stuff. And the truth of the matter is that it's really hard to avoid because it's all around us in our modern society. The more you're plugged into media, the more you're hit with this stuff all day, every day. 
not just advertisements, but the way advertisements are written or done, and advertisements that don't look like advertisements. You know, there are a lot of news stories out there that are really just advertisements for a product, <laughs> but they paint themselves as a news story. You know, you got to be careful of that. They're supposed to label it when they do that, but they don't always, or it's not always very obvious. It's in fine print. And, uh, and then, of course, there are social situations. Now, I'm not, I don't surround myself anymore with people who are manipulative, or, or at least not overtly so. And, um, and I have good friends, and I, try, and I trust my friends. Um, but I see uh, you know, people on the fringes of my social circles, or friends of friends, this kind of thing. Uh, and of course, I get emails all day long from people who run into this kind of uh, activity in their, in their lives and ask me for advice about it or whatever. And, um, and so I, uh, I've wondered sometimes if I am too much tuned into it, you know, where I might see things that aren't really there, but I haven't really found that to be a justified fear on my part. I don't, I'm not paranoid. I just pay attention. And, um, and I, you know, I've been fooled over the last few years, even after learning about this stuff. So it's not like it's, you know, you just just learning about these things is enough to, you know, to arm you against them. You have to be vigilant. But, um, uh, you know, but I, I, I haven't, I haven't really run into too many issues uh, over the last couple of years. And when I do, I just, I just kick it out of my life right away. You know, if I get some weird phone calls, uh, people trying to sell me stuff or trying to manipulate me somehow. Um, in interpersonal relationships, I think is where it gets the trickiest. Like when you have uh, friends who uh, <laughs> who get into fights with each other and then try to get you on the, <laughs> they're both trying to get you on their side, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that, that can be a little difficult, you know. Um, and and I've also, and, and just to, you didn't ask about this, but I'll comment on it. Um, I also find myself sometimes um, catching myself using some of this stuff in order to persuade or change minds. And, um, and that's a little tricky uh, because I, I, guess I don't do that on purpose. I find, I, I'll catch myself and then I'll go, oh, no, 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 no. Um, you know, because not, it's not my thing to be deceptive at all. Um, uh, but I also know what makes, you know, what, what people want to hear, <laughs> you know, and sometimes what they want to hear isn't the whole truth. Sometimes what they want to hear is only a little bit, or sometimes what they want to hear isn't necessarily um, true, but it, it's not necessarily a lie, but it's not necessarily true either, you know, and then you have to kind of consult your moral compass a little bit as to whether this is the right thing to be doing in this t place, in this time, in this situation, you know. So, uh, I don't know. So, I, you know, I've run into that as well. Uh, I think we all do. I don't think I'm saying anything, you know, unique or different here. I think we all run into these, these circumstances. I'm just more aware of the tools of manipulation. And so I try to not use them in my day-to-day -day life. And, um, and I do try to catch people out when they're using them and try to call them out on it. So that's what I can say about that. Hey everybody, so this is my little sponsor spot for BetterHelp.com and this is an online counseling service. It is not a crisis line or a suicide prevention line. There are other services for that, 
But I wanted to endorse BetterHelp.com because it is a service I believe in and it is something that I think a lot of the viewers of my channel could actually benefit from. It is cheap, it's affordable, um, it is licensed therapists, it is not just you know life coaches or something, it's actual trained professionals who can um, be contacted through uh, the link below, right, I'm displaying it on the screen right now, it's betterhelp.com slash cshelton, and the link is in the description section below down uh, on YouTube here. And that is a service that you can get text help, voice, chat, or video. You don't have to necessarily be looking or talking to the person who's helping you, because sometimes that's a button for people. Uh, also, if you get, you know, within 24 hours, you'll get hooked up with a counselor. If that person's not doing it for you, you can get somebody else. If you can't, you know, the, the fees are like 35 to 65 a month or a week for the service. Pretty cheap, pretty good, affordable service. I really don't know how they do it, actually. Um, I'm, I'm amazed by it, but it's, uh, but it's something that does actually help people. My wife, Melissa, has actually used the service and gotten a lot from it. Uh, and there is financial aid for people who uh, can't, you know, maybe make even those payments. So give it a shot. Check out the link. Fill out the survey. You know, give it a go. See if it helps. I think that, um, that getting that kind of help is something all of us need sometimes. I've spent, uh, you know, I've really leaned on my friends and family over the years. But sometimes friends and family aren't really the right person to talk to and uh, and using a service like this might be exactly what you need. So again, check out the link below and uh, betterhelp.com. Gern Blanston, can you explain a little about what happens when someone who has been a clear is deemed no longer clear? What reasons are given? Who decides? Do they take your certificate and clear bracelet? All right, getting rid of the clear status. So here's how we did it. I, this was happening around 2003 or 4 when I worked at the Advanced Organization in Los Angeles. I was the um, person in charge of the division that was handling these, these what we called non-clear R-factors. Okay, in Scientology, an R-factor is short for reality factor, and it's telling somebody something. It's giving them a reality adjustment. And uh, uh, so to speak, right? And R factor is telling them what to expect or what's coming next. It's not necessarily nefarious by definition, but it can be used that way. And a non-clear R factor would then be a statement that, hey, man, you're not clear anymore. I mean, you, you, you were clear. We thought you were clear. Actually, you weren't. And the reasoning behind it mostly had to do with the fact that they had never actually attained it in the first place. And they should not have been attested to the state of clear. It wasn't that they went clear and now they lost it. It's that they were never clear in the first place. And so now we need to help them get it or actually attain it, which means more auditing, uh, which means they're going to have to pay more money because usually it's going to take a while in order to get them from where they thought they were to where they really want to go. And um, the way this would be done is the person would be called in and, um, and they'd be taken into a room. There was no hint of what was going to happen. They'd be taken into a room, and, and the person who was uh, the director of processing, the person who's in charge of the auditing happening in an org, um, that person would sit the guy down. And this was something that we drilled, we practiced, we worked on, because you didn't want to screw this up. Because um, people got really, really upset. And you had to sit there, and you had to deal with it. Uh, you couldn't just take off. You couldn't just sit there and yell at them and scream at them and tell them how wrong they were. No way. Um, 
you know, when you were when you were giving somebody this R factor, you were changing their life in a very significant way, and you had to be ready for the upset that was going to come. So what we were trained in was uh, there were very specific Hubbard bulletins that we would go over with the person, and we'd say, okay, you know, this is we wouldn't say this is going to be a bit rough, but clearly the attitude would be. You know, I, I got some bad news for you, right? And we go, okay, look, here's what's happening. We did a very, very thorough review of your PC folders, of all of the auditing that you've had from the beginning all the way to now. Uh, we have uh, gone through all of the auditing that led to your state of clear. And unfortunately, what we found is that um, while it appeared that you had actually made it all the way to the state of clear, the truth is that you have not. What you had was called a release, uh, which is different from the state of clear. I'm sh you know, it, it, was, it was a wonderful thing. You had a lot of wins and gains. Nobody's trying to take any of that away. But there's more gains to be had. And we want to get you those gains, okay? So first off, why don't you tell me what's on your mind right now? Because I'm, I'm sure this is not necessarily easy to hear. Now, that, what I just said, was one example of how it might be presented to a person. There was a spectrum of reactions to this statement. It could be anything from laughing and relief and the person going, Wow, I knew something was wrong. This makes sense. And we were happy about those because those were like, Oh, good. Oh. You know, all the way over to a guy getting up, pound, you know, getting ready to walk out the door. And the way the, um, the rooms are set up is the, per the, the desk is set up so that the guy that you're talking to is sitting farthest from the door. The door is behind you, the DFP, the director of processing or the auditor. So he has to get past you before he can get out the room. So what you do is, of course, you'd stand up and try to sit the guy down or try to block him from leaving. And, um, it, you know, even, even physically if necessary, but, you know, the, I, never, I never found that to be necessary um, in the time that I did auditing or did any of these interviews that we did. Um, but people did get up. They did get upset. There was one guy who broke a chair. Uh, I mean, he started throwing things. He was furious. But he wasn't trying to leave the room. He was just pissed. And... Um, and then, of course, you have to deal with that. And you have to be calm. You have to be rational. You have to be reasonable. You have to be very, very understanding. Uh, because, like, you know, you're the cause of this person's upset. I mean, this person is mad at you. And they're generally mad at the tech or they're mad at, you know, RTC or whatever. Because this is clearly, L. Ron Hubbard didn't say they weren't clear. You know, it was, it was RTC. It was the Religious Technology Center that did this. All of these folders that we did when we did these reviews, had to go to the RTC office in order to get approved. And uh, there was a lot of work done on these. This was not a, not a you know, slam-bam sort of a decision that got made uh, when we were taking people's clear status away. But there was specific evidence that they said, RTC suddenly one day said, hey, if this and this and this isn't in the folder, then they're not clear. And they might have said they were clear and everybody thought they were clear, but they're not clear. So anyway, so we deal with the person, calm them down, get them to sit down, read over the L. Ron Hubbard references that covered what we were talking about, and basically get them to, um, you know, to kind of calm down. But it wasn't over then. No matter what the circumstances, no matter who they were, no matter um, what their reaction was, whether it was relief or hostility and anger, 
and disbelief because there were plenty of people who went, well, I, you know, you, you guys are just full of it. I am definitely clear and I don't believe any of this. Well, you had to sit there and you had to take them through the references so at least they understood, hey, this is our position. You, you know, I'm sorry, I get that you think that, but, you know, we're the arbiters, you're, you're not. And they, well, of course, you would never say that, but you'd say, here's the L. Ron Hubbard references, please read these, let's go over these, let's answer your questions, let's get this all sorted out. And eventually, by the time they left the room, you would have them in a place where they acknowledge that, okay, good, I'm not, I get it, I'm not clear, that's, that's the situation. But there'd be all this upset. So what you would do is you would literally take them, open the door, and right there would be an auditor waiting to take them into session right then and there for a free session. They just, they just go, they go, okay, now here's what's going to happen. You're going to, we're going to give you an auditing session. There is no charge for this. It is 100% on us because we understand the upset and the, the, you know, the problem that this has created for you and we want to help you deal with that and the best way we can do that is to give you some auditing. So generally, it being free, the person would accept the auditing session. I never ran into a case where they didn't. And we had it all, it was like a little choreographed thing. I mean, we'd open the door and there was the auditor. We didn't have to take the guy to go find the auditor. He was already there waiting. He would take the guy right to the auditing room, put him on the cans, put him in session, do a free session on him to handle any upset. And then the auditor would sit there with the e-meter and he'd, if the guy wanted to scream and shout and throw things, then he could do that. But by the time he was coming out of that auditing room, he, his upset was supposed to be handled with Scientology procedures. And then we would, we would have it all worked out how many hours of auditing we thought the guy would need in order to get to clear. Sometimes it was only a little bit. Sometimes it was a whole lot. Depending on the case, how much auditing the guy had had, what he had said in his auditing. So we already had all that worked out. All of this, before we even picked up the phone and called him, we already had all this worked out. So as soon as the auditing session was over, he would be escorted down to the salespeople, the reg. And the registrar would sit down with him and go, okay, how you doing, you know? And, and uh, by that point, the person was supposed to be pretty chill and supposed to really understand what was going on and be okay with it. They might have some residual rah, rah, rah for, the, for the reg. Well, the reg is used to dealing with that. And the salespeople in Scientology, after a while, kind of, this is going to sound crazy, but it's true. Sometimes the sales guys, the regs, were, the, were their best friends. They were the people that the, the, the public could go to to bitch and moan and complain. Because the sales guy, the reg, was the guy who was going to have to hear the complaints anyway because if the guy didn't want to pay for his next service, he was going to tell the reg why. He was going to say, well, that last auditing I got was a pile of crap. I'm not signing up for more auditing. And the reg would go, oh, man, well, that sucks, man. And he'd put his hand on his shoulder or, you know, help him and be very compassionate. Oh man, that's, that's awful. Well, I'm going to get this fixed. This is bullshit because Scientology works and you deserve Scientology. So if you're upset about this, that's crap. And then the reg would go and write up a big report and send it to the guy's folder and say, you better fix this guy because this is, this is crap. I can't, I can't get more money out of him if he's unhappy and he's bitching about what you guys are doing. And so then let's go to the case supervisor and then get looked at. 
So often the regs act like and sound like the, the, you know, the, the, the public person, Scientologist's best friend. And so uh, they would get any more residual upset from this whole non-clear thing, and then they would sell him whatever amount of auditing he needed in order to get it all fixed. And then they would schedule the person for the auditing that they needed, and they would move on up to get to clear for real this time, you know. And that whole thing is how we did, how we did all that. So um, I hope that kind of explains how it all worked. Um, I, from the limited amount of time that I did it, I think I was involved in that for a few months, uh, maybe about six months or so. Um, we, got the, we got the line down pretty good, and we were pretty good at, at dealing with people, and, and it was kind of surprising sometimes how some of the people we thought were going to be the worst were actually the easiest to deal with, and sometimes the people we thought wouldn't be any big deal, oh man, you know, you just never knew what to expect. I mean, the kindest, gentlest, most nice, wonderful little old lady or man, you know, you just thought would never hurt a fly sort of person, man, they could erupt like a volcano. It was freaky how, how much people could freak out over this. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was how that whole thing went down. And I, I look back at the whole thing now and I just go, God, what a, what a bunch of unnecessary nonsense because, you know, the state of clear is just a joke. There's no such thing. So it's all just, you know, so much noise and upset and confusion and nonsense over, really, in the end, nothing. Okay, whoa, the lightning and the thunder means it is time for Flash Answers. TJB Fan, is Wi-Fi provided at the complex for its staff and public? Yes, they do provide Wi-Fi uh, on Sea Org bases uh, in public areas, or at least in some public areas. I think in, um, I think in uh, PAC it was in the cafe area, uh, this, this outside patio area. I think there was Wi-Fi there. We had Wi-Fi as the crew, but we could not access the internet through that Wi-Fi unless we had first gotten okay through security and had gotten a filter program put onto our computer and so, so that we could not look up any nasty Xenu stories or anything, you know, like that. Roman Kolosionek. As for the various homes for L. Rod Hubbard maintained by Scientology in case LRH decides to return, how is he expected to return? Do Scientologists believe he will materialize in bodily form one day to take up residence, or that he will select a body to be born in and someday show up at a base or an org saying he is LRH? I, you know, I don't even know what Scientologists think about this in general anymore because I never thought Hubbard was coming back when I was a Scientologist and a Sea Org member. I thought he was gone, and I didn't think I was going to see him again this lifetime. Uh, maybe ever. You know, he said he was going off to Target 2 and he was going to clear other planets and do more OT research, and that's what I thought he was doing. So I, didn't, I never had the idea that the LRH offices or the LRH homes or any of this stuff was set up for him to come back. I always thought, uh, as a Scientologist and Sea Org member, that those were just dedications, monuments to him and to, to the memory of the Scientology history. That's how I looked at that stuff. So, you know, I get asked this all the time, and I got to tell you, I, I don't know, you know, because I never expected him to, and I never met any other Scientologists who, who thought he was just going to show up one day. You know, if anything, I think they think maybe in some far distant future, He'll come back to Earth and, you know, and grab a body and grow it and, 
and somehow have some secret password or something that's going to get him access to the kingdom again. And, you know, then we'll know that it's L. Ron Hubbard, right? I mean, I, you know, that's, I, I always kind of left that stuff to the, you know, I figured David Miscavige had some plan, you know? <laughs> so that's my, that's really my, my, my best answer on that. Bill, Chris, what are your favorite podcasts to listen to? Sensibly speaking and critical Q&A don't count. Damn it. Those are my favorite. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I like Joe Rogan's podcast. I think he has fascinating guests. I don't listen every week by any stretch, but when I do listen uh, to podcasts, I tend to listen to him. Uh, I love the long format and the, the, the breadth of conversation that's had on Joe Rogan's podcast. I also um, have listened to Sam Harris. I don't agree with everything Sam Harris says by a long shot, but I've listened to his podcast and I like the way he presents his ideas. Um, and I love Seth Andrews' podcast, The Thinking Atheist. I think he's wonderful. Uh, he's got the best radio voice ever. <laughs> so if you've, even, even if you don't want to hear about atheism, just go listen to Seth's podcast just to hear his voice. It is, it is a wonderful, wonderful voice. Uh, all right, so those are the three I could think of off the top of my head because I'm not actually a really big podcast listener. I'm a content creator, so most of my time is spent researching and writing my own content. Um, but when I do go to podcasts, those are the ones I tend to go to. Okay, everybody, thanks for coming around and listening to me babble for another week. Uh, thank you very much for your support. Even just watching the show, sending links out, liking the show, sharing the show is very much appreciated. Please do so. And if you can, sign up on Patreon and help support this channel so that I can do even better work for you uh, as we carry on here. Thanks for coming around. Leave your questions and comments in the comment section below, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. So this is a quick, short message about the state of affairs in Sheltonland, in, in my world. Um, you can see I'm using a bit of a different impromptu background here at my desk because I, we have construction going on at the apartments that I'm living in right now, and uh, everything is just kind of a real mess around me. And that leads me to a, um, there's a possibility, there's, a, there's a, an opportunity that I have right now to get a bigger apartment where I will actually have a room for a studio and not be in my living room. Now, this is kind of obviously important to me, maybe not so important to everybody out there, but then again, for maybe some of you long-term subscribers and people who would like to see an improvement and upgrade in my channel, maybe you could help me pull this off. What I want to do on Patreon is I would like to get up to $1,500 a month from where we're at now. We're pretty close, I think, right now to around $1,200 a month. So if I could bump it up to that, then I could actually have the income to be able to afford to be in that larger apartment that's open right now as a, as a, as a possibility and um, then have an actual studio, a dedicated space. And that will um, improve quite a few things actually about the quality of the work that I do here. So if you're at all interested in seeing this channel get upgraded in that direction, then please sign up on Patreon uh, and support my channel and my efforts here to bring you the best that I, work that I can do on a consistent basis uh, with the three videos a week that I post. Uh, I, of course, appreciate any and all support you guys throw my way, whether it's through a one-off, through PayPal, or through YouTube, or through a uh, subscription through Patreon. Now, what I can offer you through Patreon in terms of incentive to do this is 
Um, I, and when I first started Patreon, it was I was not doing special content. Uh, I was just saying, hey, look, if you want to back me up, that's the way to do it. But I have since started offering some things uh, to my Patreon supporters only, such as a monthly uh, dedicated Q&A or conversational video that just is between us. It's kind of similar to the live stream Q&As that I do, but it's only for my Patreons, and it's only kept there on my Patreon channel for them. Um, I also have some ideas of some special humorous bonus content that I want to put together with uh, my wife, Melissa, that I think might um, appeal to some of you guys too. But there's, there's some surprises there, so I'm just going to say right now that we've got some ideas that we thought might be kind of fun uh, that we could share with you guys. And I am always, always open to any other ideas people might have as to what might incentivize people to become part of my Patreon uh, support page. So. That is my message right now. I'll um, be tagging this onto my videos uh, for the next uh, couple months as I uh, have this possibility opening up here. See if we can pull this off. Again, the goal is $1,500 on Patreon, so anything you can do to contribute to that would be helpful, whether it's just a dollar a month or more. Some people do substantially more, and they, it is so appreciated. All right, guys, thanks for uh, listening to this message, and I will see you guys next time. Bye-bye.